Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. Joining me today is Stefan Powell, CEO of Dawn Aerospace. Stefan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's my pleasure. We have been looking at your company off and on, and this whole concept of, uh, of, of a space plane is very intriguing to us, and I'm sure will be to the audience as well. But I want to start out just talking a little bit about Dawn Aerospace and what it does. Yeah, Dawn, Dawn Aerospace is a space transportation company. For us, we kind of split that into two main things. It's about getting things from Earth up into space and then from space uh, to everywhere else. You know, they're quite different problems, they're quite different technologies, but we see huge synergies in bringing these two solutions together. You know, when you consider both, you can come up with, with much better overall um, you know, ways of doing things. And it also means you can you can provide an end-to-end -end solution, you know, transportation solution for your customers, you know, right from starting on Earth to getting them in space to moving them around, doing their constellation management, whatever it may be. And also uh, deorbiting at the end of the end of life. It's all important. You're taking a kind of a novel approach to getting things into orbit, and I want to talk with you about the uh, the Aurora two, the Mark two Aurora uh, space plane that you've been flight testing. You've done some atmospheric tests, some successful ground tests of the rocket engine. Have you scheduled that first rocket test flight yet? And what are you going to be looking for? Yeah, I mean, scheduling is always a it's a tricky subject uh, when when you when you're talking about R and D projects, especially um, you know, a space plane is something that, at least the way we're doing it, no one's really done done this before. Um, so scheduling, yes, it's it's sort of in, in early um, early next year. Um, we're currently putting the the rocket engine into the aircraft. We'll be doing all up system tests at the end of this year, early next year, and then yeah, we'll be going out and flight testing it. What made you think about a space plane as opposed to a traditional vertical launch situation? Yeah, that, that's a good question and, and very valid because um, it's, it's a pretty different approach, especially when you consider that we're, we're really trying to build an aircraft with the performance of a rocket as opposed to most other companies are saying, well, let's take a rocket and, and make it more reusable. And so that they're kind of working from the other end. Um, the way we see the problem is uh, it's, it's really a scalability problem. You know, we need to get space access, not, you know, we, we don't want 10 times more space access or even 100. We want to be pitching more towards like 1,000 times more access, you know, because we, we see the, the opportunities in space are not, you know, they're not going to plateau at 10 times what we're doing now. You know, when you start talking about, um, mining in space and um, energy generation in space, manufacturing in space, even you know huge amounts of transportation between Earth and Moon bases or Mars bases. You know, if you start talking about this really far out stuff. You start wanting to have solutions that can have a hundred or a thousand times more capability to space. And so, a vertical takeoff, vertical landing rocket has some pretty inherent disadvantages, um, and we we struggle to believe that these concepts are really going to scale that well, you know, to these very, very far out numbers. But fortunately, you know, there, there are industries that do dramatically more transportation than space. You know, we do more flights 
in two hours of, of regular aircraft and you know, commercial aviation does more flights in two hours than the entire space industry has ever done in the last 70 odd years. So clearly this is a very scalable concept. Um, we understand there, there are significant differences between space technology and, and airlines, um, but we wanna bring this philosophy, the ethos, the business models, the general operational concepts, bring as much of that across into, the, um, into space. And we think that we can actually build um, certainly the booster, we can really operate like an aircraft. That's that's the mission of the, the Mark II Aurora, is to show that we can operate the, the booster stage really as an aircraft that take up, takes off and lands from an airport. It'll, um, you know, when it comes back, you can put more gas in it and fly again. Uh, it flies under aircraft law, all, all those good things, you know, all those things that really make it truly rapidly reusable, like you think of your car or a plane being reusable not refurbishable like the space shuttle right. or even a Falcon 9 booster, you know, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's refurbishable, but it's not reusable in the same way your car is. What are some of the unique challenges for getting what is essentially an airplane into orbit? Yeah. Uh, so, so just to be clear, we, we don't, at least not yet, we don't intend to get the aircraft stage into orbit. You know, that's okay. significantly more difficult. It's, it's still a two stage to orbit orbit concept where the first stage is, is really that, that aircraft portion, um, but still very significant challenges, um, particularly in terms of like certification. Um, you know, we wanna fly as an aircraft, we wanna fly out of airports, like I said. Um, so we need to talk to regulators, they need to be comfortable with that. We don't want to have exclusive airspace. You know, that's one of the key things. If you imagine we wanna do a thousand times more flights out of Florida, what's that gonna mean in terms of um, aircraft trying to land? Um, at Fort Lauderdale or, or, or whatever, you know, that's that's going to be really challenging. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of airlines that are not very stoked with you. So um, we need to integrate with other airspace users. Um, so that's one of the problems that we're already approaching. We can approach that at the subscale as well. That's a, you know, that problem is, you know, if we're trying to fly to space twice in a day with a subscale vehicle, that problem is basically identical to, to any scale. So we can show that we, um, you know, that we can get around these things, we can work with regulators, um, we can get a license to fly as much as we want, um, and we can do it um, safely and, and cost-effectively. When you talk about certification, and I spent a long time in the aviation business, and certification of an airplane is, is one of those things that is really a big challenge for somebody who's just trying to build a new airplane. And you're working on kind of a, a very different concept here. And then you've got to deal with, um, I'm sure where you are, New Zealand regulations, you have an office in Europe, so you've got the EASA regula regulations and the FAA. How are you working on certifying this aircraft to be able to operate in all of those different airspaces under those different regulatory structures? Yeah, super good question and um, very difficult to do long term for sure, um, but we, we do have a plan for this. So starting in New Zealand is, is really the key to that um, that question. Um, New Zealand is a, um, it's quite a different regulatory regime than um, EASA or FAA. Um, it, it's much more, um, it's, it's much easier to go to government agencies and work with them and actually figure out how are we from fundamentals going to um, not increase um, the danger to people on the ground. So this is obviously a very different concept. It's not something they're particularly familiar with, a rocket-powered um, unmanned aircraft. Um, so the um, New Zealand regulatory regime um, has allowances for 
um, very unique types of aircraft. There's a um, part 102, it's called, um, allows you to submit almost any aircraft type and argue from fundamentals why um, you're, you're able to, to fly this aircraft. You know, if we, if we were trying to uh, certify this aircraft under part 23 or part 25 or something, it, it just doesn't fit the mold. You know, there's rules right. in there about like, you know, um, how your jet engines have to be designed. And then you say, well, we don't have jet engines. <laughs> they go well uh <laughs> so so what are you we... using well it's a rocket well now we've got a different problem <laughs> exactly so um but so once we've established compliance in new zealand there there are recognized mechanisms for um transferring that compliance to to other regimes you know faa EASA, casa uh what have you so you know there are established pipelines to do that but for sure that's a that's a challenge probably five or maybe even ten years away for us um, we're happy just establishing compliance in New Zealand and, and we can do our R&D testing out of here. Um, and likely there's some interim steps uh, flying in you know, uh, places like the USA. There are actually established spaceports where in the meantime, we can operate out of these spaceports um, before we really want to scale to other airports. I would recommend Cecil Spaceport, which is just right outside Jacksonville, where I live. You can just you can just come right here, and and we're all set up for you, ready to go. <laughs> Perfect, happy. You know that that's that's Florida covered. Then, uh, you know, we, we've got agreements with uh, Spaceport America, Spaceport Colorado already. There's um yeah, there's there's good coverage in the states. When you look at, I think this is an interesting concept because I wasn't aware that you're starting you're going from, from the ground with a rocket engine. I just, I guess, assumed that you'd have a jet engine to take, get the airplane off the ground and to altitude, and then the rocket engine would take over. But this is this is something that's going to start as a rocket and end as a rocket. Does it glide back like, like a shuttle does, or does it come back under power? Yeah, it, it, it glides back. Um, so that's, that's the real uh, advantage, you know, being able to burn all of your propellant on the ascent means that you come back, you know, light as a feather, um, you know, you've dropped nearly 80% of your mass um, on the way up. So your, your wing loading and everything is super light because you've got no fuel on board. Um, that means all your dynamic pressures or the you know, aerodynamics coming back um, are not nearly as challenging as what you would, would otherwise think, especially because you know, our wings were large enough to take off. Um, that means our wings, you know, our, our wing loading is much, much lighter than something like the space shuttle. You know, the space shuttle was really a, like it was a controlled brick really on, on re-entry. Mm. Um, our vehicle comes back much more more like a leaf. And so um, the aerodynamic environment is much, much less challenging than, say, for a space shuttle, for sure, because that came back from orbit as well. Um, and also much less challenging than like a Falcon 9 booster or an, or, or an electron stage. You know, they, they come back. I think their maximum Mach numbers get well above five, sometimes in excess of eight or nine. And our maximum Mach number will be in the low threes. So, you know, these are these are not similar regimes. Um, I, it makes our life much easier. I have tried to fly the space shuttle landing simulator down at the Kennedy Space Center uh, for the landing, and I haven't I have yet not crashed it. So that's, it's yeah. a I, I've got a lot of respect for those guys. Uh, give us a little bit about your background, Stefan, and talk about your team just a little bit. Yeah, my, my background, um, I studied uh, aerospace engineering in the Netherlands and uh, did a master's in space systems engineering, so pretty classic there, I suppose. Um, I had exposure to some um, interesting startup um, companies as well, uh, Rocket Lab in, in the very early days, as well as 
um, some other uh, satellite component companies uh, in, in the Netherlands. Um, the team is generally uh, you know, a reasonably diverse bunch of, of engineers um, from both New Zealand and, and Europe. You know, we draw a lot on um, the European sort of deep space uh, expertise there. That's really key. We, um, we like to pair that with the slightly different mentality and skill set of, um, of our New Zealand engineers. Um, you know, roughly speaking, um, New Zealand is very good at doing, um, you know, early stage R&D, figuring out different, you know, uh, really um, difficult problems and being very pragmatic. You know, that comes from being um, quite a, um, a, a young nation um, in our own right. While the Netherlands really has this sort of, you know, deep experience in, um, you know, in space. They've been doing it just about as long as any. Um, so, you know, combining these two um, mentalities, these two cultures means we can kind of get the best of both worlds. And then also combined with the, you know, the, the deep customer base, um, funding streams um, and whatnot in Europe, you know, um, through European Commission um, and ESA, combine that with the New Zealand regulatory regime, open skies, all that good stuff. Right. You know, we can kind of get the best of, of both worlds. When we talked about the regulatory things and we talked about certifying the airplane, but there's also, at least here for the FAA, an Office of Space Commerce that deals with licensing launches and recoveries and those things. Are, are there different regulatory considerations for operating a space plane as there are for a rocket? Um, yeah, it, it kind of really just depends how you want to um, treat it. And um I wouldn't say I'm yet an expert in, in how the U.S. treats that. Um, I don't know that anybody going, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, well, this is also part of the problem. You know, like we're, we're, we're pushing the boundaries on how people think about these things. You know, like one of the key boundaries in, in New Zealand is, um, okay, we want to operate the vehicle as an aircraft. So it's going to get an aircraft license to be able to, you know, all of its flying that it does under 60,000 feet is all jurisdiction of the Civil Aviation Authority in New Zealand. So, okay, we need a piece of paper from, from them that says we can fly. But once we're above 60,000 feet, they say, look, we don't care anymore until you come back. Um, <laughs> but you are in somebody else's jurisdiction. So, you know, now we need to talk to the New Zealand Space Agency and get a high altitude license. And if we're putting something into orbit, then we need, you know, a, a license for that too. So uh, we, we work very closely with these agencies to figure out um, scalable useful ways of, of licensing this stuff you know they're, they're not in the business of trying to make this harder than it really is they can see the you know, they can see what we're trying to do and um and they want to come up with scalable ways of licensing this that we can get you know licenses for an envelope you know that we you know that's a blanket license that we can operate under the same way that you operate an aircraft and that was one of the issues that came up with a recent Virgin Galactic flight as well, because they got outside their envelope and wound up having to have some lengthy conversations with the FAA about that. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. That's um, you, you don't want to do that. So take us through just a typical um, Aurora Mark II, or Mark, yeah, Mark II Aurora um, mission profile. Yep. So that's um, you know the the operation teams um, they. They drive out to to the launch site. They've got everything uh, packed up in a trailer, and and takes them a few hours to set up. That's all the all the radio gear and um, you know ground support systems and stuff. Um, then the aircraft gets prepared in a few hours. Uh, you know, gets fueled up, um, and then they pretty much push it out onto the runway. Um, or they they see what's going on in terms of the the local airspace. Um, a NOTAM goes out to 
you know, notify other um, air users that, that will be operating in the area. Um, and then we're basically free to operate. So we use storable propellant. So we're not particularly time bound. You know, we're not like uh, constrained by liquid oxygen or something boiling off. Um, we'll have um, hydrogen peroxide and kerosene. So pretty much when we're ready, we're, we're able to, um, you know, uh, start up the engines. Um, we take off in a, about two or three seconds. Um, we rotate, pull up. Um, and that all, you know, that is almost the, the major function of it as an aircraft. Once you, once you're through that, you're into a, a like a high, um, high angle climb, um, you know, somewhere between 70 and 85 degrees most mm. of the time. Um, and you keep accelerating away until I, I believe engine burnout is something in the order of about 45 or 50 Ks altitude. And then it coasts up to, um, above hundred kilometers altitude. Um, during that non-aerodynamic portion of flight, which is you know anything above um, you know thirty-ish kilometers, you know hundred and something thousand feet, you don't really have aerodynamic control anymore. The vehicle is controlled by um, a reaction control system, um, also powered by hydrogen peroxide, much like the X X fifteen was. Um, that controls all your re-entry angles. Um, you're now reasonably far downrange, you know, on re-entry. Um, peak velocities or peak Mach numbers are about 3.1, 3.2. Um, we, yeah, re-enter at about 20, you know, between, I mean, you really start to hit the atmosphere at about 30 kilometers again. And I believe the bottom of our pull-up is about 25 kilometers. So, you know, still quite high. The atmosphere is still very thin at 25 kilometers. You're pretty much just doing a max G pull-up at that point, which is really quite high because you're super light. You know, we have to design the aircraft to, to survive several G at maximum takeoff weight. So when you right. you know you burn 80% of your propellant, 2G of your original weight is now you know more like 10G. So you can do a 10G pull-up mm -hmm. um, on, on your re-entry um, and then just continue to scrubble your energy in the high atmosphere. And once we're we're happy with the, the aircraft in that upper atmosphere, we we turn around and start gliding back home. Um, and that's all the subsonic glide back home and we're able to control the the energy using um split um split rudders and things like gear timing and um just the general um you know by controlling the elevity of the aircraft we can pretty much time our um uh, just control our energy on on that um descent and stick a landing just like a shuttle does is it mostly automated or do you have a pilot flying it from a remote remote location yeah, also a very good question and important for certification once again. From a certification point of view, it's always a piloted vehicle. There is always a pilot in the loop. Now, of course, just like regular aircraft, it's highly automated. There, there is plenty of computers in the loop um, helping the pilot, but that's the key point. It's helping the pilot. They are at no point critical. They just really increase your chances of success. <laughs> so for sure, you know, there's the... Um, the computer can control just about everything. It can, um, we're pretty close to being able to do end-to-end -end flights, you know, fully autonomously with a pilot just standing on, you know, on standby monitoring things. I'm talking with Stefan Powell, CEO of Dawn Aerospace on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Let's shift gears a little bit, Stefan, and talk about your other business, because traditionally a lot of spacecraft have used hydrazine for fuel. 
or their thruster systems, but you have a new green propellant system. Talk with us about that and its advantages over the hydrazine. Yeah, yeah, we, I believe we were the first company ever to use uh, nitrous oxide and, and propylene on orbit. Um, so that, that was a nice um, small claim to fame. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting propellant in that it's it's very, very simple and robust. You know, that, that was one of the key things that we saw. Like, you know, once again, if we're thinking about space at a thousand times the current scale, what do you need? You need decent performance, simplicity, and scalability. You have to be able to produce heaps of this stuff at low cost, and it needs to be, it needs to just work. Like, it's really simple, to be honest. Um, so getting rid of the toxicity of, of hydrazine was, um, you know, been, Militaries deal with that just fine. Um, large commercial organizations um, can do it, but when you're when you want to have hundreds or thousands of different organizations operating satellites, you've ju- you just got to get way simpler. You know, I, I couldn't imagine a car running on a fuel that would kill you at forty parts per million. You know, yeah. and vaporizing <laughs> like like you know you you couldn't fuel up your own car at a gas station. So you just run into these really basic practicality things. <laughs> um, so you know that was a key thing. We wanted customers to be able to fuel up their own satellites. I don't I don't want to be in the business of having to go to launch sites and do that. You know, we 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 do that now, but it's a it's a it's a stepping stone to a much more scalable thing. So yeah, um, nitrous oxide and propylene. Um, it works really well. It's super simple. You don't need um, pressurance, you know, helium pressurance systems. You don't need propellant management devices. The tankage becomes way simpler. It becomes way lighter. Um, so the performance is significantly better than hydrazine monoprop. It's a little bit worse than hydrazine biprop. Um, so the performance is super acceptable in that sense. Um, but the you know the, the cost is just dramatically lower because of how much simpler it is um, and how much more available the propellants are. You know, it's not uncommon for users to pay in excess of 500,000 US dollars just to fuel a hydrazine system at a launch mm. site. You know, we sell entire systems for less than 100,000 US dollars, including fueling. So, like, <laughs> you, 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 I mean, you, you can see how, like, the cost difference is just dramatic. And that really enables customers to um, do entirely new things in space. It makes them think totally differently about what can I do with propulsion now that I can have, you know, dramatically more of it, or I can afford to put it on satellites that I previously couldn't have. Say, mm-hmm. for example, CubeSats. It was almost just unobtainable. You couldn't put cubes, uh, you couldn't put chemical propulsion on a small CubeSat because it was just like you know. Uh, a $2 million mission was going to need a million dollars worth of propulsion is just silly. So So how does what you're doing compare with the ascent green propellant that's being developed by the Air Force Research Lab? Yep. Um, It's, it's, now I'm certainly not an expert on on ascent. I've never worked with it myself, but my Mm -hmm. interpretation of it, and I I hope there are other experts out there would correct me if I'm wrong, is that really the intent was, as a, as a hydrazine replacement. So it still has um, a few of the bottlenecks that um, that hydrazine have. So I would say it's it's reasonably appropriate if you were happy with hydrazine beforehand, but you just don't want the toxicity. There's there's still a few problems with with that um, that we, we wanted to design out. So, you know, it still requires catalysts. It still requires a lot of preheating. Um, it's not particularly scalable in that it's, this is a pretty fancy chemical. It's not widely available. Um, it's not widely understood. It's 
it's much easier to handle, but it's not as easy to handle as like nitrous oxide and propylene. You know, like every hospital in the country has nitrous oxide supply and just about everyone who's ever used a barbecue would know how to use propylene, basically the same as propane. Propane. And so, um, you know, like the, the level of accessibility is not the same. Um, so Ascent does have pretty fantastic performance uh, when it works, but, um, you know, because it uses catalysts, that means it's, you know, you you eventually kind of ruin these catalysts. It's a lifed component. Um, if we think of a world where um, satellites are constantly getting refueled, mm-hmm. you know, eventually, you know, having a lifed component like that is is pretty problematic. Um, our engines will keep firing as long as there's gas in the tank. You know, it's just, it's like a spark ignited system. So just like a car engine, you know, it'll pretty much keep going. So, so why does green matter in space? It matters on the ground. Okay. <laughs> and all satellites start on the ground. So um, sure, it's, it's not about carbon emissions or anything in space. You're for sure that that's, um, that's nonsense. Um, but yeah, toxicity on, on the ground really matters. There's been several hydrazine spills in the past that have rendered you know, parts of NASA facilities or large areas um, extraordinarily toxic or unusable. Um, it's just a really high compliance cost. Like I say, you know, that that $500,000 fuel bill, which is not uncommon for a hydrazine system, that's really just derived from that toxicity. Now, your thrusters have been flown on a number of systems in space, and they're going to be flying in the near future. Talk about the the thrusters that you have under development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're super proud of um, yeah, thirty three thrusters on uh, on eight different satellites, many of which are um, you know still still operating or still doing stuff. Um, yeah, the ones that we have in development. Um, so we, we're certainly still um, improving the performance of the thrusters that we have. Um, we really wanted to be fast to market, so I wouldn't say that our thrusters are as good as they possibly can be. They're very very robust. But there are there are some things about them that that could be better. They we could have um, higher combustion efficiency, higher ISP out of them. There's still plenty to squeeze out there, um, and yeah, we can we can also make them more compact, uh, lower cost. Uh, again, um, all of these things are kind of iterative improvements. So so we're working on that. Um, uh, and and the next real th- uh, big step is to to build larger engines as well. So the, these propellants scale up really well. Um, that's also another problem. Uh, with uh, like LMP-103 or the um, the other ADN-based propellants is that they, they've really had problems scaling up. Um, that's actually, making larger engines for us is actually easier than small engines. Um, it's really just about um, being proven in market. You know, it's great to build engines that are appropriate for $200 million satellites, but if you can't convince the people that build $200 million satellites to, to use your new fandangled technology it's it's not much use <laughs> so we're, we're starting to get to that stage now where 30 thrusters in space is not heaps but you know we we should get to sort of 200 or you know more um, within the next few years um, and then we really have the product and the, the core technology well enough established that people that build larger um, satellites you know uh, geostationaries um, would actually find this technology attractive. So yeah, we're, we're starting to build the larger engines for them um, as, as well for other missions like uh, lunar missions, asteroid missions. Um, yeah, we, there's, there's some stuff we, we haven't announced there uh, that we've already signed. So cool. When you, when you start flying 
the Aurora with a rocket engine. Are you going to be using that uh, nitrous and propylene fuel in, in the space plane, or is it a different fuel than you use for the thrusters? It's actually quite a different technology. So the, the nitrous oxide and propylene is great for space because it's super robust and super simple. That's what satellites need. Um, but it's not particularly good for a launch vehicle because it, it's, um, it's quite high pressure. So mm. it has quite heavy tanks. Uh, so we use uh, hydrogen peroxide and kerosene um, for for our space planes. Um, you know, it's it's pump fed, um, much much better, uh, like uh, impulse density. You know, you get a lot of um, a, a lot of power in a in a small system, so that really suits aircraft very well. Talk about the difference between your approach to a horizontal launch and a company like Virgin Orbit. Yeah, so um, there's, there's a few different ways you can slice this or think about it. Um, Virgin Orbit, if, if you took their rocket, if you look at the mass fractions of the rocket itself that they launched, um, you'll see that the, the payload fraction of that rocket is worse than a similar sized rocket or even a smaller rocket like Electron. So you can kind of roughly see that actually the, the air launch factor doesn't add anything to the entire launch vehicle. In fact, it makes it less efficient. So for sure the you know that the aircraft is providing some delta v you know it has speed it has altitude that's useful but it imposes so many other requirements on the vehicle like aerodynamic and structural that the entire launch system actually becomes less efficient when you know even just in terms of the expendable portion so for us it's it's very different the expendable portion is just the second stage that's about 10% of our total hardware um and in, by doing so, you know, by, by having the vast majority of the system be reusable, um, we're actually saving a, a ton of cost there. So the, the be all and end all is this is, you know, how much does it cost to get my stuff on orbit? Um, the, the, the highly reusable space plane concept is much, much lower cost. So how is the second stage integrated into, into the space plane? That, that hasn't that's something we haven't talked too much about publicly we will have some information coming in uh, about that we have some uh, rather unique concepts for for that as well um good we can have you back <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so, suffice to say that um you know that once again the, the 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 key philosophy needs to be maintained and that you know it really has to fly like in like an aircraft so i don't want to be dropping stuff off there's no fairings there's no right you know, uh, other deployable things except the, the second stage and the payload itself. Do you have a timeline for getting your Mark III variant operational or is that just still too far out in the future? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, we, we have internal timelines, but um, I don't think it makes too much sense to talk about them, them publicly just because it's um, it's highly dependent on how, how our development with the Mark II goes, how we go raising, uh, raising money. Um, suffice to say that um, we don't think we're in a huge hurry. We don't, you know, that this technology will be so transformational um, that it doesn't really make a huge difference to us as a company of whether it happens in five years or 10 years. Um, in saying that, we are pushing forward as, as fast as we can. We are moving pretty quickly. Um, once we've proven this technology in the Mark II and completed its mission of flying to space twice in a day, we think we have a very solid footing to, to go to the world and say, hey, look, we have a we have a truly transformational technology here. It's really just a case of scaling this up. The, the major hurdles 
um, especially the ones that aren't technology-based, you know, like will governments and certification agencies and the general ecosystem mm -hmm. let you actually do this? If we've answered that at the subscale, I think it's um, it's not trivial, but it's it's certainly doable. You know, it then just becomes an engineering problem of let's scale this up, let's make a larger vehicle. And of course, every space company has met all of their timelines just exactly as they laid them out. <laughs> of course, of course. Yep. I mean, we're 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 just as guilty as everyone else in that respect. Stefan, we're just about out of time, but I want you to take a moment and look at if you might over the next 10 to 15 years as it relates to space commerce and, and tell me what you see. Um, our core company thesis is we don't know what's coming. We only know that whatever that there's a lot of something coming. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be manufacturing in space. I don't know if it's going to be energy harvesting. You know, some of our customers are just doing things you, you never thought were going to be a thing like uh, you know data servers in space or um, all kinds of different communications relay relay networks um, you know uh, one of them um, is a space entertainment company doing essentially uh, you know artificial shooting stars was one of our customers um, you know our core philosophy is um, we don't know what's coming but we know there's a lot of it coming they're all going to need to get to space and they're all going to need to move around in space so as long as we're working on ways of making that um, easier, more cost-effective, and more scalable, we're, we're on the right track. Well, Stefan, it's been an interesting conversation, and I do hope you'll come back and talk with us again as you continue down this path, and we wish you all the best of luck. Cool. Thanks for having me on the show, Tom. Stefan Powell is the CEO of Dawn Aerospace, and that's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.